All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday worship. This is your first time. My name is Thomas. I'm on the pastoral staff here. And before we get into today's passage, just want to preview a couple of things happening in the life of our church for you to expect this upcoming year. If you're a member, this is for us to anticipate what's going to be happening. And if you're new, you get kind of a peek of what our church is like. Again, this week, we are going to be starting community groups again, and either this week or next week, rather. And if you're somebody looking to join a community group, just know we do plan to have a welcoming lunch this month. And so that's our way as a church to get plugged in to meet other people and to share life together. Uh, that's going to be beginning this week. Again, want to reemphasize the Bible reading plan. Um, we're going through the entire Old Testament. How many of you guys have ever read through the entire Old Testament? Yeah, so we should, we should probably go through that. And we want to really understand like what the scriptures are saying. I always uh, paraphrase it like the New Testament is like episode four to five and six of Star Wars. But if you only understand that, if you, episode, if you understand the prequels, which is the Old Testament for us to understand the beauty of who Jesus is, understand the context of where he came from. And this week, we're actually starting that plan. It's through short videos just to kind of prompt us of like, hey, what the Bible is, what the Old Testament is. So please download down our link tree. We'd love for you to join us all together as a church. And another, another thing that's going to be happening, lastly, is starting 2024, we actually want to do uh, a regular gathering of prayer for our church. And just know we're going to be more detailed explaining about that. But the reason why is because next week we're going to be going through a sermon series that actually is going to be a vision for our church in 2024. And our vision is a year in prayer where we really want to call our church to dedicate 2024 to prayer. Last year is all about reading the scriptures and we still want to do that. Uh, but this, this year we really want to call our church to pray. And so we're going to spend weeks learning about what it means to pray. We want to practice prayer. We want it there to be arenas for us to pray as a church. And so again, a lot more details will be given about that in the next few weeks. And just to kind of preview what's going to be happening in our church at the pulpit, at least, again, for the months of January and February, the next slide there, we're going to be doing a year in prayer. We're just going to be focusing, talking about what does it mean to pray like Jesus prayed and for his followers to pray. And then after that, we're going to be going through actually a series in the book of Exodus, spending a few months there, chapters 1 to 18. So looking forward to going through a text like that. And then we're going to go through actually a, a little bit of a pause talking about elders in our church. If you're new to our church, we're actually potentially in the process, process of installing our first set of elders. And we want to just prime our church to understand what it means to be an elder. And then after that, we're going to go all the way to, oh, go back all the way to the summer. Uh, we're going to finish Exodus chapters 19 to 40. And so that's kind of a little bit sneak peek of what's happening in our church. Uh, but today, what we're going to be doing is it's the beginning of the year. And the beginning of the year, we always want to take a moment to look at this upcoming year and exhort our church to approach this year a certain way. And the main thing I want to talk about is why is our church doing all this? Like, why are we reading our Bibles? Why are we gathering as a community? Why are we calling us to pray? And to help answer that question, I want to look at the passage that we have before us, Second Chronicles chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles, you turn there, or if you have your programs, you can turn to Second Chronicles. And here at our church, we believe that when we read the scriptures, God is speaking and he is alive. And so can we all rise together as we read this passage from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. So verse 12, it writes, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I shut the sky so that there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. 
My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, we invite you in the beginning of 2024, speak to our church. Help us to hear what you have to say and exhort us, O Lord, in the way we need to be exhorted this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So what does this passage from this obscure text in the Bible, 2 Chronicles, have to do with Bible reading, community, prayer? What does it do for us as a church living here in the 21st century? And if I could, I guess, narrow down to one word why we're doing all that we're doing this upcoming year, the one word I would introduce to all of us is this word called revival. It's all about revival. Now, I'm not sure what goes to your brain when you think about revival. If you haven't grown up in the church, that word is not really used except to like, talk about companies that have a second like, coming. Like Abercrombie, I heard, is making a revival. Back in my day in college, everyone wore Abercrombie. It got kind of weird later on, but now it's making a comeback, apparently. Abercrombie, there's a revival going on. Or if you grew up in the church, when you think about revival, you think of these large youth rallies where people come together and you like pray for revival. Or if you have more like charismatic background, revivals is like spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and prophecies or whatever it might be. But the more I actually study about this idea of revival is I realize, oh, revival is something that a lot of Christians talk about. It's not explicitly in the Bible, but a lot of people who think about Christianity, who follow Jesus, they talk about revival. And it's not just the charismatics who talk about it, Presbyterians, Baptists, conservatives, they all talk about this idea of revival. And I like this one definition given by John Piper about what revival is. It's on the screen. He defines revival like this. He says, revivals are a sovereign work of God in which the whole region of many churches, many Christians has been lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into conviction of sin, earnest desires for more of Christ and his word, boldness in witness, purity of life, lots of conversions, joyful worship, renewed commitment to missions. You feel God has moved here. Or here's my simple definition that seems like a little too much. This is what I would say. Revivals are a spiritual reawakening through the powerful manifestation of God's presence at a large scale. That's what a revival is. And it's interesting as historians, they actually look in history going, you know, something happened in this city and there's nothing you could explain it except some type of like revival happened. For example, in the first century when Pentecost took place and all the early followers of Jesus started speaking in tongues and people were just following Christ at a massive level, we look at that going, that's a revival that took place. Or in the 16th century when the Reformation took place and people starting to follow scripture and read scripture, some people look at that as a revival. Or the 1700s, the great awakenings that took place, it's like, wow, there's something that awoke in North America, revival took place there. Or historians, they look at Korea, when, like, why are there so many Christians in Korea? And it's because in the early 1900s, 1907, there was a great revival that people would say happened where people just started to become awake and people started following Jesus in Korea there. And so historically, there's like this trend where you just see like there's certain places at certain times where some type of awakening happenings in a large, massive scale And there's probably, as we look back at that, going, that's a revival happening. God's presence was just there. Now, how do you actually know when it's a real revival? Like, what are some signs that a real revival is happening? It's not just emotionalism. It's not just this hype thing that's going on. Duncan Campbell, he's a Scottish writer, and he talks about there's four altars that are being filled with the presence of God. And when those four altars are being filled probably a good guess that there's a revival happening. Here's the four altars. The first altar is this. You feel the presence of God in your heart. In the hearts of an individual, the presence of God just moving powerfully, stirring. 
And not only the heart, but then when it goes to the home, you see marriages and families, they are just following Jesus. Something is happening in the household amongst the families in this area. And not only that, but then it goes to the churches. The churches, something just happening, not just amongst one local church, but several local churches, many local churches in an area. And then not only that, it goes to the region where something's happening in the city, where an awakening is happening to Christ. You know revival is happening is when you just see people being convicted, people experiencing contrition, conversions happening in all these altars. Sleepy Christians are waking up. People who, yeah, I'm a Christian, but all of a sudden they go, oh my gosh, I need to take Jesus seriously. Something's happening in that moment. Or nominal Christians who grew up going to church, but they never knew why. Some, for some reason, there's a conviction of sin and repentance taking place. Or hard-to-reach neighbors, people who would never consider going to church. For some reason, they're like, I'm actually open to going. What's this Jesus thing about? When you see that happening everywhere, good chance that this might be a moment in the beginning of a revival. Now, here comes another question. How do you know when you need revival? And this is where it's really interesting to just think about the word revival. In order to revive something, like why would you need to revive something if it's dead? If it's dead, then you need to revive it. And so the question is, when you look at the OC, when you look at Orange County, do we, are we spiritually alive in this city? Or can we say this city's kind of spiritually dead? Might need revival. Or if you look at the churches in Orange County, when you visit different churches, and some of you who are newer, you're visiting different churches, do you go going, wow, this is a spirit-filled church? Or does it feel kind of dead? Or families, when you look at the families in Orange County, do you think, wow, families, they are trying to follow Jesus? Or do marriages and parenting, does it feel like, yeah, there's a lot of morality going on, a lot of sports going on, a lot of academics, but Jesus is kind of dead in these families. And here's a more specific question. What about you? What about your heart? When you look at your heart in this past year, in 2023, were you spiritually alive or are you in need of revival? I found this article, literally the title was Signs You Need Revival. I was like, this sounds relevant, and so I'm going to use this. And she listed all these different signs that were there. A good indication that if this applies to you, you might need revival in your heart. And I just grabbed a couple of them. Here's one thing she said. She says, if you don't love God like you once did, if the prime of your Christianity was back then, but not now, and it's been a long, I'm not talking about like a moment, like it's like been a long time like that, oh, you might be in need of revival right now. Well, here's another sign. You make time for recreation, sports, and entertainment, but not God. Like, you're busy. You're really busy. But whenever there's, like, something fun to do, like, oh, you make time for that. But when it comes to, like, God's stuff, it's like, oh, I'm too busy. Well, you might, that might be a sign for revival in your heart. Here's another sign she gives. Church hangouts are better attended than prayer meetings. Like, when there's a hangout, like, you're there. But prayer, like, ah, I'm busy. Here's another sign. You're bored in worship. Like, this is boring stuff to you. It's been boring for a long time. That's why, like, you don't really come sometimes, because it's just boring. That might be a sign that there, there needs to be revival. Here's another sign she gives. Your earthly interests are far greater than your eternal ones. Like, it's been a long time since you thought about eternity. That's all about the here and now. Here's another sign. You serve only if someone begs you. Only if someone goes, please, like, we need help. You're like, okay, fine. Then you'll do it. That's the only time you're willing to give yourself of others. Oh, it might be, something might be going on. Here's the last sign. Your faith is joyless. Like you're, you're joyful in other things, but when it comes to your faith, it's just it's duty, it's obligation. And those might be signs, if that's you, if one of those or all of those apply to you, like 
might need revival. I, by the way, I didn't make up this list. Someone else made it up. And yet it is very diagnostic, I think, for a lot of us here. But here's the good news. If you find yourself in that situation, I want to just let us know today to start things off. We have a God in the Bible who wants you to experience revival. We have a God who tells us he wants his people to experience his presence, and he tells us how. He wants to let us know what it looks like. Second Chronicles, a book in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with this book, join our Bible reading plan. We're going through the Old Testament. It is basically a retelling of First and Second Kings, but it is written to Israel after they return from exile. And it pretty much recounts the history of Israel's kingdom, David, Solomon, and all the lives of the kings. And chapter 6, the chapter we read right before the passage today, Solomon was king of Israel at the time. They have constructed the temple of God, and God's presence has come into that temple. And then Solomon gave this long prayer in chapter 6. There's this long prayer asking God to be with his people at this time. And in chapter 7, the chapter that we read today, God responds to Solomon's prayer, and he shares how, you know, there's going to be a time where Israel is going to go through a difficult season where my judgment is going to come upon them because they are not faithfully following me. But that, when that happens, it's not like we broke up. God's letting them know, this is how you can experience my presence again. And so today, what I want to talk about by looking at this passage is I want to talk about this idea of experiencing God's presence, or another word that we're using is revival, and learn that we can't manufacture revival. We can't make it happen. God's not a genie where we go, revival, and he just comes. But we can anticipate revival. We can hope for revival. We can pray for it. And the way we're going to look at it is three things to learn about revival and how it works in this passage. First, we're going to learn the context for revival. When does revival happen? When are the openings oftentimes for revival? Second is the conditions for revival. How does it happen? Like what's actually supposed to take place when revival happens? And then lastly, the promise of revival. Why should we expect revival to come? So the context, the conditions, the promise. By the way, this is a New Year's message. Uh, so it might be very spirit-filled. I'm also a little bit under the weather. So if I say anything crazy today, it's either the spirit of God or my sickness. It's not me. So just want to put that out there. So anyways, first, the context for revival or when does revival happen? It's interesting. When you read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, here's a quick question for us. When does God show up to his people? Again, that's a nice trivia to think about if you go through our Bible reading plan. Like when you read it, like God doesn't show up all the time. Uh, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And yet there's specific moments where he shows up in a very explicit way. When are the moments that God shows up? Is it just randomly when he just comes? He goes, oh, here I am. Like, is there anything that we see a, a pattern where he, there's a moment where he actually speaks to people or manifests himself? Tamaki, he's a scholar. I like the way he put it. He says, there's actually like three categories that's really fascinating of like when God tends to show up. Again, it's not exhaustive, but it's like consistent throughout the Old Testament. And here are the three uh, categories. It's not just the Old Testament, the New Testament. The first category is this, when people are in trouble. When God's people are in trouble, for some reason, God tends to show up. doesn't mean every time you're in trouble, he shows up. But in those moments of trouble, for some reason, God sometimes often shows up. For example, Israel, when they're at the Red Sea and Egypt's about to come at the chariots, God shows up and parts the Red Sea. Or when Israel, they're battling the Philistines or the Malachites and they're in trouble, God tends to show up. So when you're in trouble. Here's the second time you see God show up, prayer. 
When people are in deep prayer, for some reason, God shows up. Hannah, when she's in the temple, she's praying deeply and she hears the voice of God. Or the apostle Peter, when, he's, when he sees that vision of like unclean animals that he's called to eat and God tells him, eat it, he was praying during that time. And when you look at that first category, trouble, if you're not a Christian, you go, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds like something a God would do when you're in trouble, God hears you and he comes. If you're a Christian, you go, yeah, prayer makes a lot of sense. That's when he comes and shows up. This third category is kind of interesting though. Like God tends to show up also consistently here that we don't know what to do with. And the third one is this, when you sleep. Fascinating. Like when you read the Old Testament, watch out for that. When people are sleeping, for some reason, God shows up. It's really weird. For example, Abraham, the first time he encounters God's physical presence through fire, it happens in Genesis 15. It's while Abraham's sleeping. Or Jacob in the Old Testament, when he sees the stairway to heaven and angels ascending and descending, you know what Jacob was doing? He was asleep for some reason. Or Daniel, when he gives those crazy visions in chapter 7 of all the things he sees, you know what Daniel was doing during that time? He was sleeping. And what's really fascinating is all three of these elements, we see all three of these here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. In verse 12 to 13, look what it says. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night. First Kings tells us Solomon was sleeping. It was a dream. And he said to him, I have heard your prayer. Solomon was in the context of prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. And then here comes the trouble. If I shut the sky so there's no rain... Or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people. God heard Solomon's prayer. God appears to Solomon when he's sleeping. And God explains, this is how you get my presence if you're in trouble. Again, God is omnipresent. We believe God is everywhere. And yet the Bible's story seems to show that God shows up in a very explicit way in these interesting moments of trouble, of prayer, and of sleep. Now, what do all these have in common? Why does God do this? And if you, look, if you actually think about it, all three have one thing in common. You are very much in trouble in, in prayer and sleep in this vulnerable state. Very vulnerable. When you're in trouble, all your guards are down, and you're, that's the reason why you're in trouble. You're vulnerable. I recently pulled my back. Some of you know, like, it was really bad. Normally when I get hurt and you go, people, are you okay? I go, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. I just like, you know, try to play it off because I'm too prideful to admit how hurt I am. But when I pulled my back, I lost all dignity. I was just like, oh my gosh, just screaming and pained. I didn't care how I looked. Why? Because I was in trouble. And when you're in trouble, the real you comes out. All pride and pretense is gone. You're vulnerable and you're in trouble. Prayer. When you're truly praying, your real self is coming out because it's you and God. I remember I had a friend, he, I knew him in college. He went to seminary, he became a pastor. And when he came back, he started doing all this like holy talk to us. Like his, the octave of his voice was really different. The language he would use, he's always like quoting scriptures. And me and my friends were hearing him talk. And after like an hour, we kind of take it. We're like, dude, like, can you stop that? Not because we don't like that talk, but like, that's, we know you. Like, that's not really you. Like, come on. He's like, oh, sorry, sorry. He started talking like normally again. And it's because we know this person. Like, you can't fake that around people who know you. And just know at church, when you're in groups, you could fake how close you are to Jesus. But if you really are engaged in real prayer, like, dude, Jesus knows. The real you comes out. It's a vulnerable space that you're supposed to have and experience in prayer. And sleep. We don't realize, man, you are really vulnerable when you're sleeping. Have you ever been to a youth retreat? You should not be the first one to fall asleep. 
you are vulnerable to outside forces. I'm not sure if sisters do this, but brothers, especially back older generations, man, we did like illegal stuff to each other when people were asleep. Like you're going to wake up and something's going to be gone in your face. Something's going to be written or drawn. Something's going to happen. But here's the common thread. What I'm trying to say is when you're in trouble, when you're praying or sleeping, the purpose is not we got to sleep to experience God, but the purpose is none of God's presence for some reason He's there when people are in the state of vulnerability and surrender. And the reason why it's consistent with the theme of scripture, which is God, he is not the God of the strong, the powerful, and the mighty, but he is the God of the lowly, the weak, those who are surrendering to him. And this is where it gets tricky because for a lot of us here, we do not operate in a realm of vulnerability day to day. Most of us, we are, have our guards up, our pride is up, we have it together. And that's probably why for a lot of us, we might believe in God, we subscribe to what he says, but we do not experience him at all. Tim Keller, he's a pastor, he was a pastor in New York and someone who I remember hearing him talk and he says something fascinating that always stuck with me where he said, in order to believe and embrace anything, not just God, not just a religion, but anything, you need three things and you need all three at the same time. An intellectual acceptance, a social acceptance, and a personal experience. You need all three for you to really embrace something. You need, an intellectual, it needs to make sense. It has to make sense for you to embrace something. Some of you like to run marathons. Awesome, no judgment. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand marathons. Why would I run if nothing's chasing me? It doesn't make sense. Why would I pay to run? And again, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense to you, but until I get over that hurdle, you will never see me run a marathon because it does not make intellectual sense to me. There's also the social. There's also the social that's there. For some of you, when you think about Christianity, it's hard to embrace because the intellectual part, it's like, oh, there's too much hurdles out there. But what makes it easier for you is that, oh, but there's a lot of people around you who believe in God. And a lot of you, when you became a Christian, that's how it happened. You had parachurch, you had your youth group. A lot of people you respected believed in Jesus, and that helps you to believe in Jesus. Versus some of you, you have a hard time believing in Jesus because no one around you believes in him. You need the intellectual, you need the social. But here's the kicker is a lot of you, you need the personal as well. Like, have you personally experienced God in your life? There's a sister in our church who I kept trying to evangelize, not about Jesus, but about Great Wolf Lodge. It's a theme park. It's an amazing theme park. It's this indoor water park. So comfortable, convenient. You heard me talk about this a lot. And I tell people all the time, like, you got to go. You won't regret it. It's the best. And there's one sister in our church. It made intellectual sense. Great Wolf Lodge is a convenient, comfortable place to take your kids to have fun. It had social backing. A lot of people reviewed it saying, it's awesome. But she just didn't want to go. She said, I don't believe in it. Until recently, she went and I converted her. She's like, Great Wolf Lodge is pretty amazing. And you know why she converted? Because she went there. Her family went and she saw the beauty, the glory of this theme park that's so convenient and so local. And, but she needed all three. They had to make sense. They had to have social support. And she had to personally experience it. And I think this is the problem with some of us here. The way you became a follower of Jesus is it's all social maybe. Like your friends believe in it, but you know, that's it. Or for some of you, you approach Jesus intellectually where you accept and subscribe to what he says as truth. But he's not present in your life. Like the idea of a personal experience, like you don't know what to do with that. I know this is a very personal thing for me because I feel for the longest time, my soul was very undeveloped because I came to become a Christian studying the Bible, 
reading, going through apologetic books, hearing preaching, going, I think this is real. I had a community where I was really involved in the church, and that's kind of been the way I practiced following Jesus for a long time. And yet, that was only at this intellectual and the social level, but like his presence, I didn't really know what to do with that. And I realized the result of that is Christianity became much more about this like philosophy for me. It's like this like morality or like this way of life. Whereas when you read the Bible, it's actually really about a person, somebody who you personally relate to. And I realized for the longest time, I didn't know what that was really meant. Like to relate to Jesus as a person, I feel like it's really foreign to a lot of us. I can relate to him, he's really far away and he gives me this moral code to follow. Like, I get that and I probably live my Christian life a lot like that. But to relate to him as a person, to cultivate this real relationship with him when he's close to me, I actually realized that was really weird. And I realized because I don't really have a lot of personal experiences for a long time with Jesus. And I really feel for a lot of us, you're, you can relate to that. Where Christianity it is a code of conduct to you. It's a family tradition. It's a philosophy of life. But it's not a person. It's someone who you really relate to. And that's why Christianity is more conceptual than it is personal. And that's why I think we need revival. Because we don't come to God with this vulnerable space to let go of our guards and to invite him here. And if we don't come to this vulnerable space, it seems like what's consistent in scripture is we don't really see God show up. Because he comes to you when you're real, when you lay down your guards, and when you're vulnerable. How do we practice this? How do we come before the Lord in humility? Usually it's one or two ways. God humbles you, or you humble yourself. You practice surrender. We're going to talk a lot about that, how we do that individually in the next few weeks through prayer. But if I could just exhort us corporately, you know one way you could really practice to meet the Lord in the space of vulnerability? Our Sunday worship. Let this be the one time throughout the week that you put down your phone. You discon- you're always connecting to the world. You're always connected to the world. Let this be the one space for like an hour and 15 minutes you try to connect with God. Let this be the one space where you give your undivided attention. We don't give anything our undivided attention, let alone God throughout the week. But what about this one space where together we're giving God our one undivided attention? And what if this is the one space where we anticipate meeting God. When you come to church on Sundays, you anticipate a lot of things. You anticipate meeting friends. You anticipate hearing songs. You anticipate a talk taking place. You anticipate coffee or lunch. But a lot of us, we do not anticipate meeting God. We don't think he's going to be here. And that's why we don't mind just kind of doing whatever we want during Sundays. We don't mind just lounging around or on their phones or whatever, because we're like, oh, you know, no big deal. But what if God is here? And what if you could experience him if you actually lay down all pretensions and come before him? I know for me personally, this is what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to make Sundays like this sacred space because I'm just so busy throughout the week and it's hard to have a consistent time where I'm just like laying it all down, coming for God. So Sundays has just been this space where I'm just like coming. I'm trying my best not to be distracted. I'm trying to pay attention. When someone's preaching, I, didn't, I wasn't preaching the past six weeks. I was hearing someone preaching. And I, by the way, I understand it's kind of humbling to hear someone preach. So you're sitting there just like receiving. That's a humbling thing. Like, when do you do that? And yet Sundays is like that one space where like, I'm just going to like let that go and just try to hear what, if the Lord has something to say. This is a weird thing I've been trying to do. I'm not saying you have to do it, but someone recommended to me saying like, hey, if you want to come like in a humble place, like consider your body, 
Because your body and soul, it's connected. And is your body communicate you want to receive the Lord? And I was like, what are you talking about, bro? And he's like, this is one thing he does. He's like, I just like lift my hands. I just like come to Sundays during prayer, just lifting my hands. It's just like this posture of like wanting God to be here. And on Sundays, like for the past year, I can't do this. I'm too self-conscious. Like I just cannot do this. But I've been like, when no one's looking, I'm just like, boop. Just like lifting up my hands. And I've been doing this for a whole year. You can catch me today later if you want to. Like, I've just been doing this for the whole year. Some of you do this too. Like, I see you, man. Like, I see you doing this. And this is my way of just like signaling to my body and soul, like, I really want to meet God. It's weird because my natural posture is like this when I pray. I do this when I hear preaching. I do this when I sing. I just do this. And it does something to my soul where I'm just kind of like reserved. And yet it's really weird when I do this, like for the first six months, I'm like really self-conscious. I'm like, dude, am I trying to like look like I'm more holy than I am? I look around, are people looking? It was really weird. All this like social commentary going on in my brain. But then like the past few months, it's actually been interesting where it's just like, oh, it's like my body prepping me. Like I'm here to meet God. And I don't care what anyone else thinks at this moment. I'll care later, maybe after the time is over. But in this space, like it's like my vulnerable moment to come. And again, I'm not saying that all of us, again, if you want to do this, great, join us, join us to do this. But if you're, whatever, whoever you are, how do you treat the gatherings here? Come before him in vulnerability. See what God does. But just because you're vulnerable doesn't mean he shows up. There has to be certain things going on, certain conditions, and that leads to the second part, the conditions for revival. You can't control God and make him show up, but you can create the conditions to anticipate his presence. Second Chronicles 7, God shares with Solomon, if you want the Lord to return in the midst of him being far from you, there's certain things that has to happen, certain conditions that are there. Look at verses 13 to 14, what it says. The Lord says to Solomon, if I shut the sky so there's no rain, or I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name, if they humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Quick note, Second Chronicles, you know this prayer that he, God gives to Solomon? It was recorded and it happened 400 years before the book was written. So the people reading this, they're like, oh, this happened to Solomon 400 years ago. It's like us reading something from like the 16th century. It's like, what relevance does it have to us? And the relevance is that the author, these four features, we put up on the screen, humble yourself, pray, turn, seek. Those are the things God was looking for back then. And those are the things God's always looking for today. That's why the Chronicler is writing this. This is what God looks for, to dwell with the people. Let's, t- let's break this down one by one. Like, what do we mean when we say humble turn, seek, pray. The first one is humble. If you want to experience revival in your life, the presence of God, you have to humble yourself. How? Chronicles gives us a a specific way. Listen to God. Listen to his word. And the reason why I say that is throughout Chronicles, uh, the book describes people who humble themselves. It wasn't like this, oh, I hate myself. I'm so low. It's not like that type of humbling. People who humble themselves were people who listened to God. For example, Josiah, he was the the king who brought the biggest revival in Israel. The reason why revival happened was Josiah discovered the book of the law, God's word. They read it, they listened to it, they followed it. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 27 says it like this. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words. This is what it means to humble yourself. Instead of listening to yourself and feeling you got it together, you listen to God and what he has to say about your life. And this is similar to how we function today. God does not speak audibly to us, but God speaks through the scriptures, we believe, as a church. 
and we humble ourselves where God has something to say and we need him to say it. Because at our church, when we look at the Bible, I'm not sure how you guys grew up if you're new to a church, but the Bible, we, it is not an encyclopedia of facts. It is not a book of inspiration and quotes just to get your day going. It is not a book of law or a systematic theology book. The Bible is fundamentally a story. It's a story about the way real life is supposed to look like, what reality is, and it all points to Jesus and his kingdom. And the Bible, when you read it, it is reminding you and inviting you to live by that story rather than the story that you're already living. The world story that we all live by, which is the best thing in life and happiness is your family, or to make sure you just kill at work, or you have this type of picket fence white home, or you just need to make sure you have a great marriage. All good things, not the ultimate story. But all of us have subscribed to that story, and life looks kind of weird because of that. But the Bible is meant to be this reminder. There's actually a deeper, truer story that's out there, a real story that you need to be awakened to. And every time we open it, it reminds us of the greater story that we're invited to participate in. We don't read the Bible simply to read the Bible and check it off. It's to hear God speak and to remind us of the greater story that we are living. That's why every revival that happened in church history, it always, so many different things happened, but one consistent pattern was that the word of God was central because people were living by a different story that the world did not know how to make sense of. And there was something beautiful about that story. If you want there to be revival, humble yourself, Humble yourself to know your story is a little bit broken when you are living by it, but yet humble yourself to hear God's story of the kingdom and see what happens. That's the first thing. God tends to be present in those moments. Here's the second thing that we see. Don't just humble yourself, but pray. If you want to experience revival in your life, you need to adopt a meaningful prayer life. And I'm going to be really brief here because we're going to be talking about this for the next five weeks or so. But just real briefly, uh, when you pray, that does not always bring revival but you cannot have revival if prayer is not taking place. And the reason why is because prayer is essentially you're crying out to God, calling for his help, being vulnerable to the point where you want God to show up. And I think this is one reason why a lot of us, we don't experience God's presence. It's not because you're not praying. If you're in this church, and you're, especially if you're a member, I'm pretty sure that you pray, but you pray just enough. You pray before meals, you pray before your small group or community group meeting to open things up. You pray to close the meeting. You might pray every once in a while while we are in church. We pray to transition for the praise team come up. You have like these transition prayers that take place. And again, nothing's wrong with those types of prayers, but just know if that's you, you probably don't enjoy praying that much. You, God probably doesn't enjoy you praying that much either. There's no presence. And if you want to experience revival in your life, there needs to be real prayer a culture of prayer where your life is covered in prayer. And that's what we're going to be talking about that a lot these next few weeks of how we can grow that culture of prayer, both personally and also corporately. Here's the next one. How do we experience revival is turn. If you want to experience revival in your life, you need to turn from your evil ways. And this is the most uncomfortable one because it presumes that there's evilness in us. Um, this is the main reason why in the Old Testament, God's presence leaves Israel because there's a lot of evil going on where they're going against God's ways. And God, he will not cohabitate with evil. So God bounced his presence left the temple in the Old Testament because of that. And even though for us as followers of Jesus, we've been forgiven in Christ for our sins, just know there are deep layers of sinfulness that's still in each one of us that numbs us to God's presence and we won't feel it unless we address it. I said this before, but there's an author named Robert Mulholland. He says, when you think about the idea and concept of sin, 
rebellion against God, brokenness, whatever, however you want to define it, there are four layers that human beings actually experience sins. And here are the four layers. Layer one is blatant sins. This is things that everybody in the world knows is wrong. Like you probably shouldn't murder people. You shouldn't do hardcore drugs. And those are just things that the world disapproves of. Level two is willful disobedience. This is where the world might think it's fine, but we in the church know, oh, you shouldn't do that. Like drunkenness, gossip, lust. The world's okay with it, but here in the church, we know Jesus. That's not the way we follow him. Third level is unconscious sins. This is stuff that you're blind to, like pride, your greed. It's really deep down there. And then the fourth level is like deep-seated structures of trust, things that we are secretly or unknowingly devoted to, family, security, approval. And level one, all of us in this room, I think we're pretty good at self-regulating. Like if, you, if someone, you know, doing something, something crazy, you almost know like, that's crazy and you shouldn't do that. I feel like we all almost adopted that somehow. But levels two to three, like, I don't know, it's just kind of floating there. We don't know what's happening in levels three to four. And even level two, like things that are like, hey, I was like, follow Jesus. I'm not sure we should do that. It's just kind of happening. And when that's just there unaddressed, like the presence of God is going to be missing. You know, my big fear for our church, this is a, a I have like, I have a lot of fears, but one fear that pops up regularly is my fear for our church is we, after 10 years, we look back and we were that typical young Orange County Church. You know what the typical young Orange County Church is? Just to be blanket statement, it's this community of people who are really young and they use Jesus as an excuse to hang out. Like you would never meet if you didn't go to the same church, but your fellowship has nothing to do with Jesus. And there's so many OC churches like that where they drink together more than pray together where they hang out and they wait for this stuff to end just so they could do the real fellowship. And it's so contrary to what the profession of faith is. I know in so many churches where people, they regularly, it's like no problem, just open the bottles, let's get wasted. It's your birthday, 21. Or there's like wedding culture. We're like, this is the wedding. Let's just go all out. You ever watched the movie, The Purge? The Purge is like that one time you can do whatever is evil and nobody talks about it after that day. People view that about weddings. This is the one time, even though we're all followers of Jesus, you just go crazy. You go crazy. We post it on social media. Nobody talks about it, though. And it's predominant. It's so normal in Orange County churches. Like, yeah, you just get wasted at at weddings because we're celebrating. Or you have people in churches where they travel and they just are, you know, they're dating, but they're traveling with their boyfriend, their girlfriend. Nobody talks about it, but it's like traveling. They're probably doing something sexually promiscuous before marriage. And even though we're followers of Jesus, it's just kind of normalized. We just don't even consider it that what's the big deal? Everyone's doing that. Or we have families where we care way more about our kids' academics and their morality, but we don't talk a lot about them raising them in Christ. And it's all happening inside of churches. And my fear My fear is not that that's happening in our church because the church, you're going to have instances like that. It is not a museum of saints. It's a hospital for sinners. I hope people who struggle with that or experience that, that you go to church. But the biggest fear is that us as members are seeing that and we don't care. We don't say anything. You do you. So long as we just check on each other, say, how's your week? All good. We're just fine with just being at this church. And when that happens, when you get a community that's just sharing life with each other, but not exhorting each other to follow Jesus, you have that community that's just using Jesus as an excuse to hang out. And you're not going to see Jesus present there. 
I had a friend who visited different churches. He was saying it was so discouraging visiting different churches in Orange County. I could just tell Jesus isn't there. Like they don't really care. They just want to hang out. And that's my fear because this is the temptation of Orange County. This is the, it's not everyone in the United States, but here in particular. And we can't do this by ourselves. And we can't handle this stuff, the levels of sinfulness, because we don't even see it. And we definitely have a hard time changing it. And that's why you need people. Like you need the community to exhort each other and to hold each other accountable. I hear sometimes in our community groups, and I get it, some community groups tell me, like, you know, we've been meeting weekly, and it gets boring because it's the same stuff every week. Like, it's just complaining about work, complaining about dating life. And I feel like in those moments, they're, oh, that's normal. Now you're called to get deeper because I know your life is not just about work. Your life is not just about your dating life. There's deep stuff going on, and we need to go there to deal with this, to deal with those levels. Otherwise, you're never going to experience God's presence. We have to get to that level where we exhort each other. And this takes time, but the community groups, they have to get deeper. We need to be willing to say, hey, like, how are you doing these days? Hey, you don't share much in our community groups. Are you okay? Like, are we, are we willing to go there? Hey, I know you went, I was at that wedding too. And then, you know, how do you feel about that? Hey, I saw you vacationing with your boyfriend and girlfriend. And like, what's going on? Is everything okay with that? Hey, you're really mean to your wife. You're really mean to your husband. You talk to them in a really disrespectful way. That's really uncomfortable for us to say to each other. And yet this is what community is meant to be for. Not to judge each other, but to exhort each other to help you follow Jesus as we follow Jesus. And unless we're willing to do that with safe people, you're never going to experience the presence of God because he will not cohabitate where people are just blatantly doing whatever they want. The church is meant to be a place where sinners are helping other sinners. (laughs) Lastly, to experience revival in the presence of God, we need this fourth thing, which is seek. Humble and pray, the church could help you with that. To turn from your ways, you need community. But this last one, to seek after God, it's actually up to you. To seek after God means you're hungering for him. And we need that if we want to experience his presence. Notice God, when he tells Solomon to seek after him, what does he say to seek after? Not his hands, but what does he say? Seek my face. If I need information from one of you, like, hey, what's going on this week? Like, I need like, some type of new stuff. I will text you. But if I want to see you, I won't text you. I will FaceTime you. I never text my kids. That's weird. I FaceTime my kids. Why? I want to see them. It's more about them. And God is saying, this is how you experience revival. When you don't just want things from God, but you want to seek his face. You want to be in his presence. And that's the big question Do you really, deep down inside, want to experience God? For those of you who don't experience him regularly, do you even want it? That's the key question. I love, uh, totally side note, I love Krispy Kreme. It is like the best donuts. Of all the donuts, and I I love donuts, first of all, but Krispy Kreme is the best. You know what's the best thing at Krispy Kreme? Apple fritter donuts. Oh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, like you got to try it. Apple fritters. It's so good that they run out regularly. And so I know for me, I, we could ask my wife, I go on these donut cravings, particularly Krispy Kreme. And it's not close by. Like, it like, takes like 30 minutes for me to drive all the way to the block to get that one Krispy Kreme. But at, late at night, 10 p.m., I will just get that craving. Like, I got to go. 
and I'll drive all the way, I'll put on like my normal clothes, I'll drive all the way there. For some reason, 10 o'clock, I guess everybody has a craving, long line at Krispy Kreme, and dude, I don't even know if they're gonna have the apple fritters. It may not be there, but I'll never know unless I drive. And so I make that trek, and I just hope that there's apple fritters there, and when I get it, dude, I get so happy. And I go through all that because I really want the apple fritter. Do you really want God? Like, are you really hungry for his presence? You will do a lot to get it if you really wanted him. And just know God, he will bypass a thousand nominal Christians who don't care for that one hungry heart who wants his presence. I really believe with all my heart, if our church, if we just took steps to want to hunger for him, God will show up because that's who God is. He goes where people are hungry after him. Revival happens when a people are hungry for his presence. How do we know revival will happen with us? And this leads to the last point, promise. The promise of revival. This passage that God, where he's explained to Solomon how revival could take place. Notice he gives them, he gives an assurance in verse 15 and 16 of, hey, this is, you know, trust me that you can come to me. Look at verse 15, what God says. My eyes will now be open and my ear attentive to prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. God's eyes, ears, and his heart, they are located in one place, he says, this temple. So long as this temple is here, I'm paying attention and I will hear your prayers. And the reason why this temple matters so much to God is not because of the temple. It's just made of earthly material. But if you read 2 Chronicles, the presence of God is there. The spirit of God is in that temple. And where his presence is, God pays attention. And if you're with the temple, God will hear and pay attention to you. And that's why it was so devastating for Israel when the temple got destroyed later. Because is God still with us? Does God still care? Because there's no temple. And that's where many years later we discovered, no, God does care. Because we see in the person of Jesus, he comes, he is the temple of God. The spirit of God dwells most fully in the person of Jesus. And when you place your trust in Jesus, you become part of that temple because the spirit of God is now in you. And when the spirit of God is in you, God's eyes, God's ears, God's heart, it is watching over you. It is paying attention to you. He's paying attention to everybody, but there's something different about those in Christ. I watch my son play basketball games. I'm watching the whole game. I take out my phone. I'm only filming one person, my son. I, I look at everything, but I'm paying really close attention to my son. That's pretty much what's happening when you're the spirit of God. His eyes, his ears, his heart, it is on those who are in Jesus. And this is such good news. You know why this is good news? If you want to experience God, you don't have to go climb the Himalayas and try to trek him out and see, can you find God? You don't have to go on this six-month mission trip to try to figure out, is God there? The Spirit of God, if you're following Jesus, he's right here. He is in you. If you would just humble yourself, if you would pray, if you would seek after his face, turn from your evil ways, you can feel his presence this year. And so if I could just encourage our church, let 2024 be a year where the beginning of revival could happen. And a lot of that is up to us to anticipate for revival. Humble yourself. What are ways you can listen to God? This is why we do Bible reading plan. It's literally so we could hear God speak. Join us in that. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Let community groups get deeper than how is your week? Thank you for sharing. Let's interact and engage. Just going a little bit deeper of what's going on in our hearts. Let's really pray. 
And we invite us to create spaces where we could pray together. And most especially, let's seek after his face. Do you want God in your life? Do you want his presence? Let the Lord's Supper be a sign that just know he wants you in his life. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, can I just pray for us? And then we'll take, we'll take a moment to come before the Lord over to supper. Let's pray.